We're going to get into Scripture as much as we can, and I'm going to try the best I can to fairly represent other viewpoints, tell you what mine is, and I hope that you can keep the same open mind. You, you got it figured out for you, but let's keep the theological humility that says, I might be a little bit off. All right? Sounds like fun. With that, then let's jump into where we are in our text. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. And we're going to have fun tonight. Here we go. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so. Amen. Well, what in the world? Here's, here's the context. Remember, we got into the first six verses last time. John is on the island of Patmos. And he begins to write this letter to them. He writes to seven churches in Asia, modern Turkey. That's where these churches are, modern day Turkey. And we looked at how he addresses them in, in just a little bit. He will address these seven churches in a clockwise fashion. I have to turn around, don't I? In a clockwise fashion. And, the, and these are the major ports in that region. And so the idea is relatively clear that this is the best way to get information to that entire region. It's addressed to the seven churches, but the plan is that everybody in that area will get the messages. All right? And so those are the people he's writing to. And he just mentioned Jesus, and as soon as he did, he kind of broke off into this doxology. He got excited about, about talking about Jesus. And now in verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, one of the things that people miss when they jump right into Revelation without much of a biblical background. One of the reasons that people get so confused about the book of Revelation is a lot of Revelation, I will even say a large majority of what we read in Revelation actually comes from other parts of Scripture. But we don't have a, many of us don't have the, the kind of biblical foundation in all those other books to see what is being said in Revelation. So tonight, I'm going to show you, I'm going to try to convince you of that point. I'm going to show you where a lot of this stuff comes from other scriptures. And here's the first one. It refers to Jesus as the one who is coming. In, uh, in Old Testament times, Jesus or the Messiah, they didn't know Jesus yet, but the Messiah was referred to as the coming one. They were looking forward to the coming one. And so when Jesus just gets started doing his thing, 
John the Baptist has already been doing his thing. You remember John got started. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. He made some of the wrong people mad. He got thrown in jail. Remember? Jesus is just getting started and John is in jail. And in Matthew 11, it says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? He heard what Jesus was doing. He was doing the work of the Messiah. And so John says, are you the coming one, the Messiah? So understand that when, when people who received this letter first, those folks very familiar with Old Testament. Most of them come from Jewish background. They're very familiar with the idea that Messiah is the coming one. John, when he writes to them, he connects that for them. He's connecting the fact that the one that Jesus, who's going to come back a second time, is the Messiah that came the first time. He is the coming one. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, clouds, mightily important, is a symbol of God's presence. You remember how the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years? How did they know where to go from day to day? During the day, there was a cloud. At night, there was a pillar of fire. There was a cloud that led them. God's presence led them. When Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, a cloud descended and covered the mountain. God's presence was there. When Moses met with God in the tent of meeting, a cloud descended on the tent of meeting. When the tabernacle was um, dedicated, and then again when the temple was dedicated, on both of those occasions, those buildings were filled with a cloud it's, it's, it's a symbol, if you will. It's, a, it's, it's stronger than a symbol because it was an actual e event, but it's a, it's a uh, manifestation, a demonstration of God's presence. God would not show himself to man because man couldn't handle it, but God could show him a cloud and say, this lets you know I'm here. So he is the coming one, and he is coming with the clouds, God's presence. Notice it says that every eye will see him. The first time he came, he came as a lowly Jewish poor. We say carpenter. The Bible doesn't ever really tell us that, by the way. We assume he's a carpenter because his daddy was a carpenter. And that's the way it worked back then. But we'll say he's a carpenter. He is poor his whole life. He even said at one time in the scriptures that he didn't have a place to call his own to lay his head. He came very, very lowly. I mean, he didn't even have a bed to get born in. Right? He came as a carpenter, as a Jew, as one who was persecuted, looked down upon. He came very humble 
Philippians 2 describes that for us powerfully. If you ever want to do some study, spend a lot of time in the first half of Philippians 2. That's how he came the first time. One who was eventually killed, primarily by Jews who used the Romans as their puppets. But that's not how he's coming the second time. When he comes the second time, John says early on, right here in, in chapter 1, verse whatever I'm on, he says that every eye will see him. He came the first time in humility. He will return in all glory. He came the first time bringing peace. He will come the second time bringing power and judgment. People looked down on him when he came the first time. When he comes the second time, we're all going to be looking up as he comes. So this is a powerful um, kind of an introduction to who he is and when he's coming. He is the coming one. He's in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And he's not talking about the Romans. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about those who are responsible for it. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That all the tribes of the earth will mourn I take that to mean that when Jesus comes in his glory, every, everyone on the earth will either rejoice in his coming or they will mourn the fact that they didn't believe, that they didn't trust, and now their time is up. And it is that coming one who speaks in eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega, A to Z. And we use that phrase from time to time. We'll say, we'll say uh, something happened from A to Z. And what we mean is everything in between. And that's what he's saying. I am Alpha and Omega. I am Others are not, but I am. I'm everything in between A to Z. I, he is saying, I am God. I'm the beginning and the end. There was nothing before me. There will be nothing after me. I am, I was, I am to come. I am the Almighty. And after John gets that message, he gives it to the people in the churches he then tells them this story of this awesome vision. In verse 9, I, John, your brother. If you remember when John wrote the gospel, he, he almost never used his name. He never wanted to bring attention to himself. Instead, he referred to himself how? Do you remember? The one Jesus loved. Not because he wanted the entire gospel to be about Jesus. It's not about John. I'm just the one that Jesus loved. Now, however, it is important that these people understand the authority by which he speaks. And it is important that they understand that this is indeed John, the beloved disciple, who walked with Jesus day in and day out. Therefore, they know that he knows what he's talking about. 
And so you'll see in these first few chapters, he refers to himself quite a few times because he's making sure they understand this is not just somebody. This is the guy who knew the guy better than anybody. All right. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. This is this is a perfect example of one of, of something that I want to point out to us throughout scripts throughout the New Testament. We come across the word tribulation. Stop thinking that automatically means the seven year period of judgment. There will be that great tribulation, but there are also times of tribulation in everybody's life. He's saying we are in this tribulation. He's not talking about the seven year period. He's talking about the ongoing persecution that they are facing at that time. If I'm right, and this was written in the 90s, Domitian is the Roman emperor, and he is just almost as evil and mean and cruel as Nero. They're, they're neck and neck on cruelty. They're, they're facing terrible persecution. That's the tribulation he's talking about. I, John, your brother, in other words, we're in this together, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. We are going through a terrible time, but beloved, we're in the kingdom. Good news, bad news. In tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. He says, I, John, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John, why'd you wind up on Patmos? Well, I wound up on Patmos because they put me there because I was defending the word of God and the gospel. Persecution. And then on verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is different from the day of the Lord. We'll talk about the day of the Lord later. That's the day he comes back. This is not the day of the Lord. This is the Lord's day. It's, it's, there's an important distinction because by the time John is writing this, the Lord's day has become Sunday. You remember Sabbath was Friday night sundown till uh, all day Saturday till sundown, sundown to sundown. All right. So it's basically Saturday. Sabbath was Saturday, right? But by the time John is writing this, the church has grown and it has changed its tradition so that now they, they have church and celebrate on Sunday. Why? It's the Lord's day. It's the day the Lord showed that he had come back to life. It's the day the Lord rose from the tomb. So Sunday now is the Lord's day. John is on the island of Patmos. He's in the spirit on a Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The voice was so loud, it was like somebody blaring a trumpet. Exodus 19 and 16 makes a very similar reference. I think John is, play, is, is borrowing from that reference. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound. 
so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That's what happened when God gave Moses the law. When God gave Moses the law, there, you see the cloud, everybody's trembling, and there's this loud trumpet sound. Now, John uses that uh, imagery to say that's the way it sounded. I, I was experiencing the same thing that Moses experienced when God showed up on that day. And this loud voice spoke in verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And we've talked about those so much, I won't take time for that. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He'll tell us later what those are. But when he turned, he heard a voice and he turned and he saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle or a, a, a sash, if you will. Now, what we find out later, I think it's verse 20, what we find out later is that the lampstands represent the churches. Seven lampstands. The letter is written to seven churches. Each lampstand represents a church. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because he said, you are the light of the world. And so the church is represented by that lampstand. The interesting thing, however, is that in the midst of those lampstands is one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself, if you look through the Gospels when he referred to himself, the title he used the most was son of man. That's how he referred to himself. Now, here is one who is like son of man. In other words, there's something different about him now. He is like Son of Man, but there's something different. He is now in his glorified state. Beyond, I believe, what we've always called a glorified body. He is in a glorified state. Like the Son of Man, I can see that that's who that is. I recognize that that's God the Son, that's the one we call Jesus, but, but he doesn't look like the, the poor little old carpenter that he used to be. Now, among other great things, now he has a robe that reaches to his feet. Who wore a robe that reached to their feet? The high priest. He has a sash that goes across his chest. Who had the sash that went across his chest? The high priest. In... Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, all right, I don't have it. Surely I've got it. Hang on with me. There we go. Son of man, referred to in, in Daniel 7. Daniel saw an, a, a, a similar vision. And in that vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. So Daniel had a very similar vision. John borrows from that the words that were used to describe that vision. Now, here's what I wanted you to see as well. Leviticus. This is a description of the high priest. 
The high priest is to put on the sacred linen tunic. That's a, a, a robe that went to the ground with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. In other words, when John heard a noise, he turned and he saw the high priest among the churches. Jesus in his role as priest. If you want to want to find out more about Jesus as a high priest, look through the book of Hebrews. You see that over and over and over in the book of Hebrews that he is our high priest. And so here here is this this image of Jesus in the midst of the churches. I think it's important that that the lampstands are separate. There are seven separate lampstands. For me, that speaks uh, an important message that each church is its own church. But while that is true, the high priest is in the midst of them, uniting them all. It's all about him. And so while there are different lampstands, different churches, we are all gathered together and made one as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. When he, when he turns around, he sees the, the lampstands in the middle is Jesus. Look at verse 14. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. Now, white hair would represent two things. One, the wisdom that comes from always being. He's always been here, so he is the ancient of days. But two, white always represents, or usually represents holiness, cleanness. It, in this case, this word means a brilliant, shining kind of a white. It's a very similar to Daniel's vision. Again, this is Daniel's vision back in Daniel 7. He said, when I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. So again, John borrows from Daniel's description to say, this is the same kind of thing that I have seen. I have seen what Daniel saw, that he is the white hair. He has the white clothing. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Ancient of Days. He goes on with this great, uh, great description. His hair was uh, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, meaning that he could burn through to see the truth. His, his eyes could, could burn through all the masks and all the games we play and see reality. Hebrews talks about that. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It says then in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. His feet that have been refined by fire, uh, in my opinion, I the scholars differ on this. I think this is speaking about judgment, that when he sits, when a king sits on his throne, he, he is raised up. 
and the subjects come before him and they are at his feet when they come to him. And the fact that it's been refined by fire means that it is strong, it is stable, that, that his judgment is everlasting, it is all powerful. Um, and so his, uh, his feet were like, like bronze, his voice like the sound of many waters. I've never been there. Have you ever been to uh, Niagara Falls? I understand <laughs> that if you get close enough, it can really, you can really hear that loud thunder that the, the water makes. And that's the idea here, that, that this, he, he doesn't, he's not just whispering. He is, this is an awesome, powerful uh, voice that he has. His voice was like uh, many waters. Ezekiel used that same imagery. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone his glory. So again, you see where John borrows from the Old Testament to explain what he sees. 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. We'll get to that in a minute. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. A sharp two-edged sword. Remember, Hebrews tells us that the Scriptures, the Bible, is... Uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is God's Word coming out. Uh, it's two-edged. On one side, He can bring judgment to those who reject it, and on the other side, He can cut away all the mess and, and free those who do trust and believe in Him. And He comes in that judgment. It's an awesome, powerful picture. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Um, Remember what happened? John saw this once before. Remember John, Peter, James, and John are taken up to the mountain with Jesus. And they get to experience something that no one else in the world got to experience. And Jesus let his humanity down. And they were allowed to see him transfigured before their very eyes. They were allowed to see a glimpse of his glory. And John remembers what that was like. In Matthew chapter 17, it was recorded, it says, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Now on the island of Patmos, John sees it again. He remembers it. He knows that look. He is seeing Jesus in all his glory. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. And verse 17 when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He fainted. Wouldn't you? I think I would too. He hears a, he hears a noise. He turns around to see the noise. And there are the lampstands with Jesus in the middle in his glorified state. Like the Son of Man, but different because he was glorified. Everything's white. He's dressed like the high priest. His face is shining. Everything's glowing. And sure enough, he couldn't stand it. He, John fell. It says, like a dead man. John was not the first to experience that. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel had a similar experience. I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. 
for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. He went white, retained no strength. He couldn't stand. He fell. He, he, he basically fainted and it says fell in a deep sleep on my face. Daniel experienced the same thing. By the way, so did Ezekiel. So did Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, this is not an uncommon thing. We see it a number of times when people come face to face, not necessarily with Jesus, but even with an angel. People pass out because of the glory of it all. And so it says uh, it, he, he, uh, uh, he fell like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I am the living one. I used to be dead, but I'm not anymore. Realizing, recognizing that he is the only being in all of time, and before time for that matter, who could make that statement. There is no other who could say that. I used to be dead, but I live forevermore. He says he has the keys of death and Hades. Those are, death and Hades are almost synonymous. They almost mean the same thing. One talks about the, the state the person's in. The other talks about the place. It's uh, when you die, they put you in the grave. <laughs> So this is a death, and Hades is the grave. It's where you put, it's where dead people go. And so he's saying, I have the keys to death and Hades. Now, when believers die, Jesus has the keys. He can let them out of that death. He can let them out of that tomb, that, that grave, because he has the keys. And then he comes to that verse that we looked at last time that is the, the outline for the whole book. Revelation 119, write the things which you've seen. That's what he just, he just wrote down what he just saw. Then the things which are, the next two chapters he talks to the seven churches. Those are the things that are. And then he says, uh, write down the things that will take place. And that's chapters 4 through the rest of the book, the things that will take place. And then just for those of us who didn't quite catch it, he ends it with verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Two things real quick and we'll finish. Seven Remember, seven is the number of completion. So he, there are, he is addressing seven specific churches in Asia, in, in modern Turkey. But he also is addressing all churches. The seven churches represent, as the number of completion, it represents a message to all churches. And I'll prove that to you the next time we meet because there's, there are verses that clarify that for us, and I'll show that to you. 
Um, the other thing that I wanted you to see is that he said the stars in his right hand. The right hand, by the way, is always the position, is always the place of authority. Throughout the Old Testament, when you see God's right hand, that's the place of authority, of power. It says he holds the stars in his right hand. That does not mean that he's taking care of them and protecting them. That means that he is using his authority on them, his power. He is in charge of the stars. So what are the stars? He says they're the seven angels of the seven churches. Now some used to teach that that meant that each church had an angel. The problem with that interpretation is here is Jesus in heaven giving John on earth a message that John is supposed to turn around and give to the angels back up in heaven. Doesn't make sense. The better interpretation is a direct translation of the word angelos. It means messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean heavenly being. It means messenger. The reason angels are angels is because they are God's messengers to us. This then, the seven stars, is not talking about angelic beings. They are the angels of the churches means that they are the messengers in the churches. I take that to mean pastors. Other, other traditions would use the term elders. That's fine. Whatever, whatever term you use to signify the spiritual leader. But it's vitally important that we see, especially pastors, need to see that those stars are in the right hand of the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who is the head of the church. He is the one who has authority and power to direct the messengers in each church.